0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Our scripture reading is out of Genesis chapter 28, uh, verses 10 through 22. And I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. And if you would please uh, stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And came to a certain place and spent the night there. Because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth, and its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and to keep you uh, and to bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my Father's house safely, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Thank you. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Dylan. Good morning. How are you guys? I hope that uh, you know, Labor Day is behind us. The rhythms of school are now hitting us. I hope that uh, you're starting to find the uh, new habits treating you well. Um, I have enjoyed this text, often reflecting on how I once perceived it. The story of Jacob's ladder in isolation is intriguing, yet in context, it makes me angry. And I hope to expose what I mean by that. If you read it in isolation, it's intriguing, but in context, it's quite convicting. And so with that, would you pray with me? Lord, I don't know why you are gracious, so gracious to the worst of sinners. We even saying it in our worship this morning that your grace is given to the vilest. And none of us, we, re- we acknowledge that it comes before your throne and even before your word, innocent. Like Jacob, we have sinned at times. That has disintegrated relationships. Ones at which we once enjoyed through our casual greed or purposeful ones, taking advantage of others we wronged. Family, friends, co-workers, peers, we could go on with the list of impacts of how our sin is disintegrated relationships among us. And what's intriguing about this story, just as it has always been true about you, you are a God who is gracious in that while we were sinners, today we know in Christ, he died for our sins. And so Lord, as the church, I pray that as we consider This long-ago story, Lord, I pray that we become familiar once again of the grace that we have received from you in Christ Jesus and not become a people who are arrogant of our own position of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I stated the story in isolation is intriguing, but in context, it's quite convicting. When Jacob enters into the world with his brother Esau, he is described just a few chapters before in this manner. Genesis chapter 5, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. If you've read with me over the last several weeks about the life and pattern of Jacob, it's ironic because Jacob is nothing that correlates to the idea of peaceful. He is, by definition, the most conceited, greedy, deceptive man in which the author has gone to great lengths To put him in not a positive position, but a negative position. Esau, as he's described in this verse, he likes his time away from the family. You might have a child like this. They can't wait to be gone. To be out on their own. To live life disconnected from the family. Esau loved hunting. And as you read the story of Esau, it becomes quite apparent That not only does he love hunting, but he wants to sever every relationship that he has with his family. He takes on two different wives outside the clan. He is purposely trying to give up his birthright for selling it for lentil soup. He is clearly like, mom and dad, let me go. Jacob, on the other hand, he is described as a peaceful man. And we know that he's not that And so the narrator adds this additional emphasis to give us clarity. So again, in Genesis 25, verse 27, Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. You might have a child like this, or you might be like this yourself. Beersheba, for Jacob, was home. Within the structure in which the family provided for him, Comfort, security, relationship, future, everything that he ever needed in life was provided within the family structure. And so, unlike his brother Esau, he is not willing to go out on his own, but rather stay within the confinements of his family, the clan. In fact, he even saw not only in the security as of his family, it was at Beersheba, his home. Like, if you live long enough in a land, some of us come into Tri-Cities, we wonder, why do people come to Tri-Cities? But the longer you live here, you notice that as memories get developed with the land, so does the land become home. Individuals that live within their houses, they don't have memories tied to the land, how to find it easier to leave the land. Jacob, like this, had memories, not only of adventure, but then also of spiritual moments where his father, Isaac, was blessed by the Lord. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, a memory that was woven in deeply into the family. The Lord appeared literally to Isaac. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, the same night, and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Isaac, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Esau could care less. Take me out. Go hunting. I'll marry other people from other clans. I want to have nothing with you and your God, Jacob. He was a peaceful man, loving, enjoyment, of the family and the blessing which God provided within it. But we know he is far from peaceful. Because Jacob is selfish, careless, cold, conniving. It's his greed that eventually disintegrates the family. And that's the context. When you read, in context, Genesis chapter 28 Verse 10, the reading that was done today. Then Jacob departed. This is a tragic moment. His decisions within the family have disintegrated it. Everything that he had once enjoyed within it is lost. In his deception, when Isaac, his father, hears that Jacob partnered with Isaac's wife and his mother to deceive him to get the blessing by putting on Esau's clothes and putting animal skin on his arms. Isaac, to say the least, shakes with anger and disappointment in his son and his wife. Esau can't wait till his father dies so that he might kill Jacob. I grew up i on a family farm, and that often meant our time away on vacation was two hours away. Like, I understand maybe a little bit of being on, like, not wanting to leave the house. But here, it's not like some of you who can't wait to get away, like, whether it be college or getting a new job, getting outside of the family. No, Jacob is being kicked out in some sense from the family because of his greed and his his conceit and his deception which has now disintegrated the family. When you read Genesis 28 verse 10, Jacob departed from Beersheba and he went towards Haran, some 500 miles away. This event, described in short six-letter words in the Hebrew, is tragic. It's goodbye. I think if we stop there just for a moment, we can all identify with someone, whether it be ourselves or someone else, that through their sin we have watched the impact of it disintegrate families, friendships. It's a spouse who becomes unfaithful and that sin ripples through the family and disintegrates it. An employee, a long work history within the place, slips up, thinks no one will notice, and he steals. Being caught, the whole structure of the work environment is unraveled as key people are let gone or let go. There are things about Jacob that we identify in our own lives. And he is now on a 500-mile journey to a destination he's never met to meet a people that he's never seen alone. Consequences of sin pays. He has disintegrated his family, and his family says, go. It's a tragic moment back. Look at verse 11 as he takes Jacob's departure. When he came to a certain place, the guy doesn't even know where he's at as he travels. The author here, he, he will use this term repetitiously here in verse 11, but he'll also use it in 16 and 17. He does, Jacob doesn't know where he's at as he makes his trip. So you read it three times in verse 11 as Jacob is on his way to Haran he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head to lay down in that place. Jacob and all of his possessions can be summed up here. The place in which he lies his head is now on a rock. He is no longer in the tents. Why? Because he has disintegrated his family and no one wants him. The reason why, like for me, if you've watched Jacob's conniving and careless and cold and deceptive attitude, like when you get to verse 11, if you're like me, and you're like, well, you make your bed, you sleep in it. That's right. Those are the consequences of our sins. As a result of your actions, not only have you disintegrated your family and the unity that once existed in there, now reap the harvest. What's fascinating next, what pops up in the story, is that this cold, careless, selfish, conniving, greeting man gets one of the rare occurrences that all men have ever had to see the realm of heaven opened up. It's fascinating. How often do I have missed that reality? Because in my mind, what we see in the next few verses is what we call in the church, grace. Jacob doesn't deserve it. Read with me what happens. Three times, has, Jacob has made his departure and he finds himself in the middle of nowhere. He has no idea where he's at. And he has found himself alone. With a rock as a place for his head. It's then in verse 12. God shows up. Verse 12. And he had a dream. And behold. You're going to see three of these. Behold a ladder. Another way you could translate it. A ramp. A ladder was set on the earth. Which it's top reaching the heaven. This. This opportunity. In the first behold is rare. Like if you read the rest of the Old Testament, there are select individuals who where the 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 realm between heaven and earth have the opportunity to see that which is bridging it. Excuse me, not Isaac, but Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 has this rare occurrence where he gets to see the heavenly realm. In fact, it was in the ministry of Christ, at his baptism, as the reader, we see it not being revealed in a dream, but in the presence of people who are witnessing it. As Jesus is being baptized, Matthew 3, 16, after being baptized. Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open; the, the bridge between the two realms exposed. John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, and lightning on him, and beholding a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When you get the first 12, of all people, Lord, why in the world does Jacob, this cold, selfish, conniving, greedy man, get such a rare privilege? Not only does he see this bridge spanning the two realms, behold, he witnesses Verse 12, again, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. He perceives and he watches the angels serving out God himself as his messengers, going to and forth between the the worlds, exercising the will of God before God on earth. If If we didn't have the reading this morning, and we were just walking through it. We might be anticipating. <laughs> You've lived a greedy, conniving, deceitful life, Jacob. Now God's showing up. And he's going to tell you his two cents. The heavens have been opened up. The angels are getting the thing ready for your judgment. And look what sh- who shows up next. Verse 13. And behold. This idea of Look. God himself, the Lord, stood above it. We could anticipate, like, God up through Jacob's life has been uh, present, Isaac's life, but as Jacob has been conniving and doing his actions in deceitful patterns, God has not entered into the story and given his two cents. What shocks the reader. What ought to shock shock the reader is not that Jacob receives judgment. What does he receive? Blessing. Read with me. The Lord stood above it. Another way translators have a hard time. It could be that the Lord is standing above the bridge in the heavens looking bound to Jacob and speaking. Another way you could translate it is that the Lord is standing next to Jacob Speaking. Hebrew is creative in the way it's used. Many lean that he is standing above. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The God of your father Abraham. The God of Isaac. And notice, it does not say, I am the God of Jacob. No. We expect that maybe to occur, but not here. I am the God of Abraham. I've been the God of your father Isaac. The land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Verse 14, you see the blessing of God being granted to a man who does not deserve it. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now God says, behold. You have this layering of expectation that God will fulfill on Jacob's behalf. I am with you. and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's striking. In context, when you understand the life of David, that he has, by his actions, disintegrated his family, receives a blessing of a family which will bless the whole world. And if, you're, if you understand this, and you're like me, you say that's not fair. And I have to remind myself what Genesis is all about. I've stressed this a couple times already. Genesis is not about Abraham. Genesis is not about Isaac, nor is it about Jacob. Genesis is about God, who is exercising his sovereign right to give grace to the world, and in spite of Abraham, who is one who is. Weary at learning how to trust in the Lord by faith. in Isaac, who t- challenges at times in his parental roles, the one who should get the blessing. But you don't see righteous people receiving the blessing. You see God exercising grace to unrighteous individuals. And here, you have one of the most expressive ways in which God reveals himself to Jacob. Remind, let me remind you. When he came to Abraham, he says, go. And Abraham went. No special visions. Isaac, I will bless you. No special visions. Jacob, up to this point, the most deceitful person that we've come to, I think at this point, willing to disintegrate his family for the blessing, receives not only the blessing, but an incredible opportunity to see the realms above and below, and the Lord himself. I'm With you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you. I wonder how much those words would have meant. When all you have is a rock. For a pillow. I just find it striking. The grace of God. In Jacob's lowest point. Willing. To be very ever present to him. Like he doesn't show up in the tents. Now, when Jacob's lost everything, that's when the Lord says, Now, now I'll make you. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, you see Jacob's response. Jacob, then Jacob, awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He grew up in a family where he could literally see the blessing of God in his parents' lives. But it was unable to discern for himself the presence of the Lord in his own life. And what is striking about this this place. Look at verse 16 again. When Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, he's unaware of where he's at. Later, the writer, the narrator helps us in verse 19. He's in Bethel. When Abraham was given the blessing to go into the promised land, he went obediently. And when he gets into the promised land, the Lord appeared before Abraham. And Abraham sees the presence of the Lord. And he's overwhelmed. And it's in Bethel that he built an altar to worship him. From Jacob's perspective, he's in a random spot. But the sovereignty of God in his flight to Haran, he has found himself at the place where Abraham once worshipped. Coincidence? No. The steady hand of God, reaching and meeting people as he desires. It looks random to Jacob, but purposeful to the Lord. You're at where I once met your grandfather. The same promise I gave to him, I now give to you. I was his God. I was your father's God. I will be your God as well. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Verse 17. (laughs) And he was afraid. Like when Adam and Eve sinned, you remember how they responded? They were afraid, and so they hid. Jacob's more than aware of his conceit, his greed, his passions for the blessing. To be acquired by his own hands, which has disintegrated the family when he's standing before the Lord. He was afraid. But then he says, how awesome is this place. This is none other, excuse me, than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So his response in light of this grace is a commitment. So Jacob rose early in the morning. And Jacob took the stone that once was a pillow and transforms it into a pillar. And this is remarkable for Jacob, who is now always trying to get at the blessing by his own hand, is going to be reshaped as a man and have to trust in God to fulfill his promises rather than Jacob trying to grab at it by his own will and power. Just as the rock is being transformed, so will Jacob in the days ahead. In his response, he rose early in the morning, took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, "God, if it, since God, if God will be with me, I will and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Not just the God of Abraham, not just the God of Isaac, but also the God of Jacob. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you have given me, I will surely Give a tenth to you. As you read the scriptures, and as even as we have already seen in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we could include Noah, Abel, Adam, and Eve, and everyone after, we witness the grace of God being bestowed to unrighteous people with an expectation for a response to that blessing. Jacob believes that God is able to do that which he promises. And in that belief, he has a response. And in that response, he has nothing to give except for the rock that he laid on and some oil. And so he promises, when you fulfill it, and you know in a few chapters, when Jacob comes back to the land, he's loaded he has so much wealth, it's crazy. And he, in light of that blessing, is saying, Tenth of it is yours. And he is willing to respond in an act of worship as a result of what God has graciously given to him. So, in isolation, like I said earlier, when you read the story about Jacob, it's intriguing. man. Guy falls asleep, he sees the realms of heaven open, but in context, if, the, if you understand, I think, what the writer is doing, you witness a man receive the blessing of God who should not, in our perception, be able to get such a blessing. It's an astounding blessing in the sense that he will become filthy rich, And his family will become the family with the most significant impact in the whole world. And it's been given to the man who is conniving, greedy, and through his actions even disintegrated his family. You know, if you've been hurt by somebody with sin in your family, you know the sins of others who disintegrated your relationships if God turned to them and said, I will bless you, that in your own heart you would say, that's not fair. I think that's what the writer of Genesis is doing. He's trying to show the character of God in spite of man. His grace is more than anything that we could ever imagine. I remember when we started considering to go through Genesis, I argued that the God of the Old Testament is the God in the New Testament. He is the same yesterday and today. There are those who will teach that the God of the Old Testament is vindictive and cruel. If he was, he has every opportunity to crush this man. And every right to do it. And yet he doesn't. Instead, you see incredible graciousness. His gracious hand given towards him. In fact, to stress this in our convictional response even further, because this God is the same God as the Old Testament, I want to look at as another unpopular figure. Because Jacob is popular, but not for the way that you should be popular. He's popular for his greed and his, his actions which disintegrated the family. In the New Testament, you see the same God in Christ Jesus, extend that same grace to those around him. And it is another, indeed another familiar story that we all have learned as a child. Zacchaeus. And you remember who Zacchaeus is, maybe. And if you don't, he was the chief of the tax collectors. Meaning that he was a Jew that had sided with the Romans, Gentiles, to collect the Jewish resources in honor to please Caesar's taxes. From the Jewish perspective, this was treason. And so Zacchaeus, like Jacob, had become socially unpopular, not only in his family, but culturally and ethnically, the outcast. And when Jesus gives this man grace. The same attitude from those who perceive it that I think that the author of Genesis wants to grapple with is revealed. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And what you see as an invitation given to Zacchaeus Similar to that of Jacob, in which Zacchaeus is required to have a response. When Jacob hears the invitation, the blessing of God, he responds to the invitation and the grace of God with worship. A tenth of all I will have is yours. And Zacchaeus follows the same thing. He entered Jericho and was passing through Jesus. In verse 2, And there was a man called by the name of of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. That's like five strikes. He has become rich through his treachery and treason. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. And was unable because the crowd... For he was small in stature. I think Luke is doing a couple things here. Not only is he small, but he's just small. Eyes of everyone. His stature is like, you're disqualified. If anyone has the right to see Jesus, you're out. So he ran on ahead. Verse 4. Climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. Look at this. This is just so fun. When Jesus came to the place. Right? God is rich in his grace that he reaches you in a real place. In real time. And some of you will find it at the lowest point of your life. It's as if God needs you to be stripped of everything so that you might rest in Him. might be like Zacchaeus. You might be like Jacob. Have lived a pattern of sin. Disintegrated families, disintegrated relationships, or been careless. Here when Jesus came to the place, looked up, Said to him, Zacchaeus, that's crazy. When God says, Jacob, the God of the universe knows you by name, even the worst, the vilest of sinners, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. Initially, I think Zacchaeus is going to be a little bit scared and a little bit worried. But look at his response. And he hurried down. and He came down and he received him gladly. Look at the crowd's response. When they saw this or it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Just Jesus' mere presence with Zacharias in the crowd's perception was undeserved. Jacob, you've made your bed. Now lie in it. Behold, the heavens open. Behold, the angels revealed as the messengers of God and serving the God Almighty. And the Lord said, Jacob. Zacchaeus socially disconnected, unpopular, outcast, a sinner gets invited to participate in a meal with God. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times. As much. When Zacchaeus is confronted with this gracious act of Christ, how does he respond? One, he takes responsibility, he's acknowledging what he has done wrong, and as a result of this graciousness that he has perceived or enjoyed from Christ, he's willing to give up half of his possessions to give to the poor and make rights of all the wrongs, up to four times as much in light of the grace that he experienced. Verse 9, look at the response that Jesus This is a short story, but what a wonderful pattern what we see in Jacob, what we see in Zacchaeus, of what God has done for all of us. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Zacchaeus. In which God was gracious to offer Zacchaeus grace. And yet Zacchaeus, in light of hearing this grace, response in worship. Look at verse 10. And we know this to be true, not just in Genesis, but we see this desperately in the life of Christ. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jacob is lost. He doesn't know where he's at. And God says, now we're at the right place. Why do I relate these two stories? If you're like me, We write people off. We do. In fact, I think at times we're like the crowd. In fact, we don't want them to see the grace of God because of what they've done. And when they do receive it, we are in danger to grumble. Why would such be given to such a sinner? And so, when I read Jacob's story in context, I am reminded of the rich grace that God has given to us. And that a man who disintegrated his family through his greed, through his passions, with his hands, that when he experiences the grace of God and hears what's been promised to him, like, I know. People don't like me talking about money, right? When I got to the end there and, and Jacob's going to give 10%, Jacob said, I don't care. You can have it. See, like, we started Genesis. And if we truly know what man is, God created a cosmic temple in which man was created in his image and his likeness to reflect his greatness and character throughout the whole world. And so when Jacob hears and and experiences the promises of God, he cannot but help be gracious and generous himself as an act of worship. And so God gives life. He gives me my food. He gives me my resources. And so in order to demonstrate that image of God physically, when I come back loaded, 10% is yours. As an expression of what you have done for me. Zacchaeus. When he hears that he's in the family of God, the eternal kingdom, It's like half of, half. So we're not talking 10% anymore, are we? Half of all that I have is going to be given to the poor. So this 10% thing we want to play with, like Zacchaeus just blew it up. Not only that, I'm going to go up and I'm going to try to find every wrong that I have done and reconcile it four times the more as an expression of, of grace which you have given me. The question that I have for us in our conviction response is if God did that for the person that has disintegrated your relationship, would you be willing to receive them as God has received them? That's the challenge. Because it is hard to forgive. But those of us who know the grace of God and the generosity of God—the same grace that's given to others, we ourselves should give to those in an act of worship. That is so. The people who have wronged us the most, like Jacob or Zacchaeus, that we be not counted among those who grumble, but rather say, "Welcome to the family." In context, <laughs> Jacob's story—it kind of rubs you the wrong way. In isolation, it's intriguing. Put it in context, and you'll find yourself, I think, convicted. Let's pray. Lord, like Jacob, like Zacchaeus, we have all heard the grace of God. You have been rich towards us. You have shown us your love in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we have heard that grace. And that those who respond in faith, just like Abraham, just like Isaac, just like Jacob and Zacchaeus. That those who respond in faith to the grace given to them. We will be saved. Lord, I pray that our response would reflect the response that Abraham, when he was victorious in a battle, he gave 10%. Jacob heard the blessing, he promised 10%. When Zacchaeus received the grace, he said, half. That we would be a generous people that we come to realize the depth of the grace given towards us and be a people who respond physically, generously, with our time, with our mouths, with our resources and gratitude for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not responded to the grace given to them in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would show them your character and that you are a gracious people and there is no one in your mind that's undeserved. And that they would rejoice, like Zacchaeus and many others before him, that you have been gracious towards them with the love of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.